Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I'm joined by sommelier Kelly Ford Lau, who is the owner-founder of Kelly Som, which is an online wine retailer based out of Las Vegas, Nevada. She ships to seven different locations, six states in one territory. Uh, Washington, D.C., which is technically not a state, so that would be like the territory, I guess. Nevada, Wyoming, California, Oregon, Idaho, and Florida. And the reason for that is essentially wine law, and Nevada wine law is actually pretty complicated. And the whole market is basically dominated by a couple giant distributors. We get into kind of how she got all her licensing, what all she had to do to get licensing, how she has to go through basically individual licensing applications for each state that she wants to ship to. In some states, it's like way more complicated than others, and that's not even worth the time and the effort. All this different stuff. It's crazy. Like we've had a few people on that have gone into wine law, like Chris O'Hearn from Parcel here in Ohio. He's in Cincinnati. He kind of touched on it. Keegan recently kind of touched on it too as well with Ignition Wines. That was a recent episode. Amanda Moss, who's in wine sales, she touched on it too as well. She was back uh, in kind of the middle episodes, uh, I think somewhere in kind of maybe like the 30s, 40s, 50s is her episode number there. And we've had a few other people kind of touch on it, but Kelly really gets into all the ins and outs and complications of just trying to get set up to be able to have a warehouse, store everything, be able to ship it. She's not even doing like brick and mortar retail or anything like that. And it's a pretty unique concept that she has is where she finds really unique wines that people don't normally have or can't find or isn't really kind of selling because people just aren't aware of it. And it's buried in these big distributors like catalogs and backlogs and warehouses and stuff. So, you know, she's finding great quality stuff at a mid-tier kind of price point, you know, affordable price point that people want, which is kind of a lot of the people that we've had on recently. Lindsay Smith's doing this too as well up in Cleveland with having kind of that price point and a lot of different wine shops too. But what Kelly's doing is she's finding those wines and doing the online retail to these different states. But she's also in a weird way, I guess you would call it dumpster diving almost, but it's still quality wine that she's getting. But she's finding these things that at these big distribution companies, they have all this wine and they don't know some of the stuff like what to do with because it's not moving because there's a market for it, but people just don't know it's there or it exists. So she's kind of taking all that stuff that she's picking and choosing kind of what the great stuff is that she can find out of there and then incorporating it into her platform too as well. And she's doing this based off the knowledge that she's obtained over years of working in the Las Vegas market. It's super unique and nobody else is really doing this. And it's kind of a really interesting way that you could see future small independent online retailers approaching the system where it's finding something, you know, that diamond in the rough that's been neglected or overlooked by the big company and bringing that into the forefront, into the limelight and getting it in the marketplace where nobody else has really had success because they haven't paid it, you know, two minds, two cents or anything. It's just kind of sat in the back of the warehouse and just always flown under the radar, even though it maybe shouldn't have. Super interesting concept. That's why I wanted to have her on. First kind of learned about her through Jessica Waugh, who was a previous guest on the podcast out in Las Vegas. And Kelly Som kind of came up in a recommendation through Instagram too as well, kind of got looking into her story and what she was doing and what was going on and was pretty fascinated. And it's just an awesome in-depth conversation, really nerdy and really heavy into just wine law and everything that goes into it. Probably the most comprehensive conversation we've had on that subject. And then we also just talk wine 
her experience, how she obtained all of it, why, you know, she's working in Las Vegas. We've had a few people on that have worked in Las Vegas before, but that was kind of back in the day where it was like this heyday where if you wanted to be a master sommelier, you would wind up there in Vegas for at least a couple of years. They had all these different tasting groups and everything like that. And it was a pretty wild time. And that was all kind of right before the 08 financial crash kind of reset the market for everything. And then it kind of built back up and then COVID kind of wiped it all out again. So it's kind of ebbs and flows and everything. But Las Vegas is the big culinary union there. So it is just kind of this weird mecca for hospitality in a way too. We've had a bunch of people kind of talk about it and their experience there too as well. So you can follow Kelly on Instagram, a couple different handles. The main one though is at Kelly Som. If you are in one of those states, you can order, she'll ship wine, tea and everything like that. The other one that she has is at the underscore Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y-L-A-U is her personal one there, but she still has some wine content on there and everything too. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. We're on all the other social medias, but pretty much just use Instagram. We'll use TikTok a little bit too as well. Here or there, we're on Reddit. Kind of just depends on what's going on and if it's something that worth commenting or participating and engaging in. Don't really do anything with Twitter or, or Facebook. It's just linked to Instagram. So whatever we post on Instagram makes its way to the Facebook page. But you can check out the website too as well. Master episode list up there for all the episodes that we've had, all the guests, individual pages, food photos, wine photos, links to every episode, comment box for question comments, feedback. All that stuff is up there. We keep it updated, constantly putting up new photos and stuff like that too as well. So they eventually make their way to Instagram, but you want to check the website first if you're looking for new photo content recommendations and stuff like that. But yeah, make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. We're on all the platforms. Mainly everybody uses Apple or Spotify, uh, but Amazon Music, Audible, Google Podcasts before it kind of gets merged into YouTube. Uh, we're on there too as well. All the other smaller ones, Pocket Casts, Luminary, like all that stuff. And then also YouTube. We have a YouTube channel there. So if you use YouTube to listen to podcasts through your TV speakers while you're working from home or just kind of when you're doing stuff around the house or whatever, or if you have the YouTube app on your phone and you're in the office and you're playing stuff through YouTube instead of the podcast, podcast app you can find us there too as well all the episodes wind up on the youtube channel so you can consume listen whatever through that platform too uh, but that is it kind of for all the updates for everyone so without any further delays here's my conversation with sommelier kelly ford lau the owner founder of kelly som based out of las vegas nevada thanks again for coming on the podcast and taking some time out of your day to jump on and kind of talk about Kelly Som, uh, which is what you founded and, and primarily, you know, what you're working on and kind of your career and everything. I always want to get into what you got going on now, but I usually kind of save that for a little bit uh, further down the episode. I always like to start at the beginning with everyone, you know, how they got into the industry that they're into now and everything, because I think it helps kind of paint a picture of what they're doing now and, and why it's so important to them. So with you, you know, how did you kind of first get in wine? Because I was doing a bunch of research. You're originally from Wyoming. You wound up in Vegas, right? But like, it seemed like you kind of really wanted to be in the hospitality industry from the get-go. It's true. I did. You know, when I was, I'm still in high school and I was thinking about, you know, what I was interested in and curious about. And my objective was before I knew about the wine world was to be able to ideally, which is ironic that I'm still here in Las Vegas, but work anywhere in the world, um, be able to like explore, you know, multiple cultures, but through, of course, like a professional path. Um, I almost went into the culinary side, but it's, it's good that I, I stayed like on the path that I did 
going to UNLV and ending up in the front of the house. The back of the house is amazing, but it's punishing in a different way. It takes a special type of person. But yeah, that's the short. I always knew I wanted to be in the culinary industry and wine um, spoke to me once I was a, you know, a few years down the road. Was it just something like you kind of originally fell into or was your family heavily involved in restaurants when you were growing up? Like, did you ever figure out why like you had this gravitation towards, you know, the culinary and, and wine world and everything? No, there's nobody in my family who's directly involved in the hospitality industry. My dad drinks wine, which is, you know, like I think uh, look at it through a lens where wine was never scary to me as far as not understanding what was in the bottle or there can be, you know, a little bit of like veil of mystery if you don't know how to kind of disseminate what's on the label and just see where in the world, what varietal, the story that they're trying to tell you about the profile of the wine. And although I didn't understand that until... I was in my like early to mid 20s. I would say what did draw me to the industry was the social aspect of it and also the tactile experience as well. Cause there's a certain kinetic energy that we all are aware who work in the industry that is in restaurants. And um, going more specific into the story, like when I was in high school, I did work as a hostess, but I, I grew up in a super small town in Wyoming. And I worked as a hostess in the summer times at um, a, like a steakhouse. And um, it was just part-time work for me, but I, I started there and I was very curious about their operation. I don't want to, you know, the restaurant's closed now, so I don't think I'm going to like um, throw anyone under the bus by saying this. But I, at one point I was asked to open a bottle of wine and I didn't know how to. And it was just me helping out with service. I wasn't necessarily, you know, a, a point person at that point, but I didn't know how to properly open a bottle of wine. I remember feeling a little bit, um, you know, like it's something that I should have already known how to do. And I think I was 18 or 19 at the time. And I, I just like distinctly remember that. But how I truly got into wine was when I finished high school and I knew I wanted to go to college, I had already researched um, like Cornell and UNLV and um, DU, of course, has a great you know program in Denver. I ended up deciding on UNLV for a couple reasons. And that ultimately, like really um, just fate put me on this path in the wine industry. So like fast forwarding to my wine classes is by the time I turned 21, I had already um, done an internship again through UNLV in China and then my undergrad in Spain. And the reason that I bring that up, which is a really, it kind of checked the box if I wanted to explore the world. So I got to do that a little bit in college in the first two years, just as part of the curriculum they offered. And when I was finally 21 and had to fulfill my beverage courses, which were mandated as part of the four-year you know, undergrad program, I chose wine. And I got really lucky in the sense that um, the professors that I had were not your typical university professors. They had their pulse on the industry, especially in Las Vegas. And one was already a master psalm and the other was studying and later on passed his exam. And so those two individuals who are still very active in the industry today, and, and I love keeping in touch with them, are Rob Bigelow and Darius Allen. And that was in the early 2000s. And, you know, they're masters in their craft. And although I'm not a master psalm, it was, you know, I'm certified, but I just, I reflect back on that time because I was inquisitive. I came to them after class. I asked all sorts of questions because I really wanted to understand the exams that we were taking and just some of the geographical kind of nuances of the wine world. It was good timing because one of them at the time, you know, his partner, like was opening up a wine bar at Mandalay Bay, um, which it doesn't exist anymore, but it was called 55 Degrees Wine Plus Design. And uh, when he said that, like, hey, my my girlfriend is like managing this wine bar, 
that they have a great wine list and they're going to pull from Oriel's in, like inventory and kind of transfer, which is typical in casinos. Like sometimes they'll do in-house transfers. And in the late 90s and early 2000s, like Oriel had a team of like two or three MSs at any given time on staff and a really deep vertical of like Austrian German wines, which that SOM team was into. And so they ended up transferring a bunch of that inventory um, to 55 Degrees Wine Plus Design. And that's when I think I really started to understand and build on top of that just basic academic kind of foundation that I got at UNLV and later on started taking exams through like, you know, the WSET and of course the uh, Court of Master Sommeliers. And I only went up to level two for both, you know, for those like their trade associations. But I just figured since I had my four-year like undergrad degree, I'd already checked that box. I'd gotten far enough later on years past in the psalm world where i was like you know what there's nothing really holding me back like i sat for level three for both and i'm an average student i'm not like a great student but you know so i figured after i passed like um tasting and service and then the written component i think those exams they have value i came to a point in my career where i was like you know what not being a level three advanced or having any further certifications isn't holding me back. So I decided to put my energy ultimately into, you know, starting my own business. With the exams, when you were going through it, you know, like you mentioned, you went through both the court and WSET. Did you have a preference on organization, you know, how they were stylized with learning? Since you said yourself, like you were an okay student, did one help you more than the other, do you think? I see advantages to both. I would say that I was biased at the beginning of my career towards the court because my mentors, of course, were both, you know, master sommeliers. And I appreciated their ability to really just be experts table side. And the vocabulary was very fluid and eloquent. And I saw tremendous value in the Las Vegas arena for that because we are such a high volume, you know, destination from a tourist standpoint. However, I will say that when it came time to sit for my advanced and I felt like although I came close twice to passing theory and that was the feedback that I got and I reflected back to my foundation and I thought, okay, like I might be missing something here. So I turned my attention back to the WSET and I thought that their strength is definitely the academic approach. It's much more structured. You know, you have uh, a lot of material that keeps you on track. And so I ended up going back through that process. And ultimately, you know, I, I got to a point where I just didn't, I, you know, maybe who knows, maybe I'll go back in my later years to, you know, if it's a personal goal of mine, but I got to a point where I thought, okay, this is where my gap is in knowledge. And I could see where if I kept going down the path of the WSAT, it would help me get past the level three in the court. But with that being said, is that I haven't done a service or theory exam for over a decade with the court, I think that there is something to be said for the fact that when you show up for exams for the court of master sommeliers, so much of it, there's a written portion, of course, but they can ask you a question anywhere in the world. You can't second guess or, or take too long to think about um, these very nuanced questions often tied to geography or aging requirements. I think that that is the hardest part of that exam. It's important. The rest of it, though, is... Um, I think muscle memory, like tasting profiles, producer knowledge. So I think there's value in both to answer your questions. But if I were to do it all over again and go back to that process, I would probably start with the WSET, finish that, and then go back to the court to have a little more success. What was like the biggest 
challenge or most difficult part of the exam process for you? Setting aside the time that's required to really fine tune the theory portion, there's plenty of opportunities in our industry to taste once you're in a buyer position. And I think that uh, just the mechanics of our industry and there's always, um, you know, which is is something to be like respectful of is there's always vendors or suppliers, whether that be distributors, suppliers who want your time, who it's their job to ask for your time. And so there's a lot of opportunities to taste almost too many opportunities and which is a, you know, which is a blessing because it does help you fine tune your palette and understand what's available and your market, which we know, I mean, that's a whole nother conversation based on, you know, market by market, what's available. Um, I would have probably set aside time before I became a buyer to really nail down that theory. But I think too, if it was really important to me, I would have done that. So I think part of that is also, I have personal accountability. Like if it was the number one on my list, then I would have already done it. So I think that, again, that's something where where it comes down to personal accountability. Perhaps I just kind of just didn't make it important enough to sit down and set aside time for that extended theory when it comes to like the level three and ultimately level four portion of the exams. Kind of get this job at the wine bar, I think, uh, being a TA, right? You're working there, you're learning. For the next like four years after school, you're just working at different places around Vegas on the floor, right? Bouncing from restaurant to restaurant? A little bit later, that's what I ended up doing. But I did have a two-year portion of my career that was really strengthened the fundamentals of my understanding of the industry, which is I did. I got the job at the wine bar, TA. Then a couple things happened um, in the Las Vegas market. So we're talking about like at this time, it would have been around 2003, like fall of 2003, um, Bellagio became part of the MGM portfolio. They bought out Steve Wynn and Steve, and this is my interpretation of the market. Of course, there's of course pieces to this story that none of us will ever know. Steve took his assets and decided to like have one last hurrah and built win. And it's because Boagio at the time had, and I wasn't part of the Boagio team. I was leading up to all these activities in the market that happened that allowed me to be part of the Boagio wine team was it's typical in Las Vegas is that when a new property opens, if there's, depending on who the owner of the property was and those relationships inside the building, especially within food and beverage collections, they tend to um, go back to that same well and um, try to take the top talent. So a lot of the top talent at the time in the early 2000s at Bellagio had been handpicked by those who were part of like Steve Wynn's close circle. So that top talent got picked up and moved over if they chose to leave, of course, to the win. So when that happened, my professor, Rob Bigelow, he had the opportunity to become the second wine director at Bellagio. And at the time, it was a really big deal because Bellagio was a $40 million wine program. And I only know this from working there. They took the prior wine director and his assistant, and there was a you know a situation where there was a non-compete. So Jay James had to leave town. Rob Bigelow got put in place at Bellagio. But then Steve Wynn and his team tried to take the wine manager away when she ended up to go work for a small distributor called Vin Sauvage. And um, Laura's like a legend. And and so she ended up getting displaced over to like role at Vin Sauvage um, to help grow like their operation. But that left a role open where he was like, okay, we need somebody who's like organized, good at pushing paper, needs to know enough about wine, but you're not a sommelier because those positions, of course, already were filled on the floor. So he offered me the role. I was still in college. Having been the TA and being very inquisitive in class, 
like opened up that door. How could I ever have known that that's the role? I could have never like tried to do that. It just happened, right? So he asked me to lunch and I remember sitting at Le Cirque and Churco, which, you know, Le Cirque's still open, but Churco is now Lago and sitting there. And he was like, okay, so I have an offer for you. The role had like a modest salary um, at the time, but I was also quite inexperienced. And he's like, I... I feel like you'd be good in this role. Like we need to fill it right away. And I remember sitting back and thinking to myself, I was like, I'm a per- I should have given myself a little more credit at the time. But I was like, am I qualified? Because I was a junior in college. I hadn't ever had a real salary job in- ever. And so of course I said, yes, like I'd be crazy not to. So it took me a little longer to finish college. I did that job for two years. It was a whirlwind. And what I learned on that job, and I mean, I was surrounded by top talent in the city at the time when it came to Psalms. So I took the opportunity in, in between finishing up college and doing my like actual role of being wine manager, I would like blind taste with these guys. And they had at the time, like um, Mina, you know, which was named Aqua, you know, like Raj Parr had built the wine program. Like I would go up there and blind taste with like their lead Psalm when they had tasting groups and I was like shadowing. So that really helped develop my palate and the understanding of the industry and the mechanics of what suppliers came in the market, who do you get what from, just the politics of distribution, suppliers, you know, a lot of suppliers when they come to the market would ask for the wine director's time. And so I was also in charge of being the gatekeeper. So I got to just meet them and like, you know, also like book schedules out like, hey, did they ask for in advance? If it was a last minute ask, I'd have to ask like, you know, so it was a little bit of like executive assistant, purchasing, auditing invoices, dealing with like wine fires, which like is not, it's not like anyone's in the ER, but you know, if someone runs out by the glass, like asking for an exception from purchasing, because there's all these checks and balances in these large properties and systems in place. And so when there is, you know, because service is such a big deal, especially in these fine dining programs, um, you don't want to be out of these specific products. Sometimes the wholesaler runs out, but if the wholesaler was not out and it was, we just didn't anticipate something being out of stock um, or being pulled at a higher velocity, you know, because it was sold to like a PD, you know, a party or something. So there's all these nuances. It was true. It was controlled chaos. And it was a very good for my development and understanding the mechanics of the industry. And again, like the politics of the industry, because, you know, you have to play ball with everybody and you can't shut people out. You have to support portfolios you're passionate about, but there is um, a balance to be had in the industry, at least in our city, there is. Eventually you're named to kind of the best new sommeliers list, right? Uh, I think it was a wine and spirits list in 2010. And also at that time, you get into sales and wholesaling. You join Constellation Brands instead of working on the floor. So what led to that change when you know, you're know you on this path, you have this accolade come in and it's you know putting you on this short list, right? And you decide to go on the other side of the business and go into kind of sales and distribution. Like what led to all that? I would say what led to it was... I love the floor and I love everything that goes along with it. I also think sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And I was very curious. I was like, okay, I've been a SOM. I got really great access early in my SOM career. I was really lucky and like my trajectory was very positive in the industry. And when this opportunity came along, I had actually interviewed one time before to try to move into sales for like a niche. The distributor doesn't even exist in Las Vegas anymore. It got acquired by Words, which got acquired, of course, by like Dulico Words, now Breakthrough. 
And so when I tried to go over to the sales side a couple of years before Constellation, before I went to go work for Constellation, I remember in my interview getting feedback that, you know, like you have this great wine knowledge, but you just don't have any experience in sales. And so, you know, they weren't willing to give me a chance. So when this opportunity at Constellation and they approached me and they were like, hey, we're looking for a field sales manager in Vegas. We need somebody who understands casinos and you understand casinos very well. And you understand like, the purchasing patterns of casinos and all the levers that could be pulled in casinos. And that is something you you kind of have to learn on the job. Like there's, there's really no other way to learn about it. So I said, yes. And Constellation is a really well-organized company. And to this day, I look at the way they go to market and the success that they've had, two years seems to be the magic mark for me and like a lot of the rules that I've had, because I think two years is enough to to truly learn and then decide if you want, you know, of course, to stay long-term with any organization. And so for me, Constellation is still the gold standard when it comes to suppliers, because not only are they like really good at forecasting and they're really organized and they have a lot of support, which like a lot of suppliers just don't have the manpower that Constellation has. But the reason that I ended up leaving is because I wasn't like that spark wasn't there. Like I wasn't super excited about the portfolio and the portfolio has the place in the market and obviously more typically high volume. So I was able to be successful in that role, understanding where to take certain wine placements within the city and like who to ask and how to present it and just understanding like lead times and, and where opportunities are. But I just like the the portfolio it kind of, I, I lost interest. That was honestly, it was as simple as that. I just lost interest in, in the motivation of like selling something I wasn't truly passionate about. After like two years, you wind up, I think, becoming a, a wine director at Bardo Brasserie, which is a Michael Mina restaurant at that time. What led you back into kind of the world of being in restaurants again, when you had, you know, kind of left for a time period and seemed like you're going down this other path and then you kind of wound up going back. I went back to what I thought I was best at and what suited my skill set. And so everyone's wired a little bit differently. And for myself, like I've always been energized talking to like, I, I'm a people person. It goes back to that kinetic energy. And I really enjoy trying to understand what somebody's looking for, trying to match it with, you know, um, what's available, like, you know, at your fingertips. And just interpreting, I think like the, the biggest joy for me across the board in the wine world is we all know producers that present well, that are delicious. And, and it's very subjective what, of course, any one person thinks is delicious. But for me, old world, high acid, cool climate, being able to work with portfolios and or product that fits in that realm, along with like great cuisine is what's always held my interest. And just being able to connect, you know, the guest who is walking through their, their, you know, their captive audience and they choose to walk through that door. And so it's already a soft sell. Like they're sitting there looking to have a good time. They walked in 99% of the people walk in a restaurant wanting to have a good time. And so they're already like the perfect customer and, you know, you're not at someone's door who doesn't want to see you. So like, I think they're the perfect customer to talk to about, wine. And although not everyone in an, who sits in a restaurant wants to drink wine at Bardo, it is part of like how they present the restaurant and, and what the restaurant's going for. So it was a lot of fun. And I was at Aria for two years. And then of course, another, you know, like, I feel like, you know, I'm always very open and receptive 
some of the best jobs I've ever had are when people come asking me if I'm interested. And so after two years of running on the floor, I thought to myself, I could stay here. And that's fine. Like, you know, time stops for no one. I could have probably stayed working at Aria longer, but there is a part of me that's always wondered, like, what do you do? And I, and I see there are plenty of sommeliers who work their, the floor their whole career, but there's part of me where I'm like, do I want to be in my early fifties running around a restaurant floor? Probably not. Like I probably need to take one more chance to transition into the other side of the industry. And so, yeah, I think I've just gone, I've, that's like my whole career is like sometimes restaurants, sometimes sales. And then of course, down the road, you know, with pandemic Kelly songs. People or some people are like, oh yeah, that's just part of our industry. Because I I always have to tell, and I actually tell my family this openly because they're always like, oh, you're always moving from one side to the other. And I was like, you don't understand. Like one year in a restaurant is like three years in like a normal job. And I was like, the restaurant industry, at least for me, like time is, like it almost feels like time is an illusion. Like when you're in the restaurant industry, because you're not on everyone else's schedule you're working holidays and weekends. And so I always say, I'm like working two years in a restaurant is like, in my mind, the equivalent of working like four or five years in like a normal job. And not everyone may agree with that assessment, but that's my own assessment. Let me ask you this then, because also you're working in Las Vegas and we've had a couple of people on who've spent time working in Las Vegas around this time period. And one of the big things with Las Vegas is a new property opens on the strip, like everybody goes, right? people pretty much work for one year at a place in Vegas and they just go somewhere else down the strip. So it even seems more accelerated in that marketplace. Maybe it's not as prevalent as it was kind of in kind of the early 2000s or 2010s. Is that still kind of the same? Like, you know, with being around Vegas, like it's still just, yeah, they were there for a year and they went over here and then they went over there. Like that's still kind of commonplace. It's so common. So right now is a really hectic time in the marketplace because Fountain Blue is opening up in a couple of weeks and like it is like a grab for the top talent right now. It's really interesting to see. It's almost, even though um, Fountain Blue is independent, it feels very much the way that it did when Wynn was opening up. And it was just like, everyone wants to attract the top talent. They offer really competitive rates. These properties, they tend to overhire knowing there's going to be some attrition. But yeah, like it's it's a very appropriate time to ask about like the environment of Las Vegas because people are leaving left and right, like really established, really like really great restaurants to work in. Because when you open up a new property, and this is unique to Las Vegas, is um seniority matters. So when I opened up Bardo, I was like, it was great because I was the senior psalm in a union setting and not all restaurants in Vegas are a union setting, but it, it plays a part is that seniority you're at the top of the pecking order when it comes to scheduling for time off. And like, this doesn't exist in most restaurants, like in any other, in any other example, but in Las Vegas, if you're not already at the top of that, like pecking order, it's very attractive to like, and exciting to go open up a new property, you know, a little bit like you don't know what to expect. You hope that it's successful and busy, but Vegas is busier than ever. Like right now it's really like, and there's not enough. I mean, if anybody's listening to this podcast, when it comes, you know, like when it's released is if you work in the hospitality industry, like literally right now in Las Vegas, they're suffering for top talent. It's, it's an interesting time. Like it's a good opportunity. There's a lot of job postings that aren't being filled, especially um, in the wine world, but it's also a boom and bust town. So I have to also emphasize that is that ever since I moved here in 2000, of course, to go to UNLV, but then having all the experiences that I've been so lucky and fortunate to have is 
um, it's a boom and bust town. So when things are really, really good, it's like awesome to be part of it. But when things aren't good, it's really hard. And a lot of people lose their jobs and you kind of have to like be ready for that. And I think until you go through that, um, whether or not you're financially prepared or just mentally prepared um, and know that it has nothing to do with you or your own performance or your value. I think that I have to emphasize that about Vegas. Like the highs are super high, but the lows are really low. And it's always been that way. It's an interesting town. Go in with a contingency plan of like, I'm going to be here three years and then I'm out kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and if you're going to live here, which is like, you know, that it's very affordable market to live in compared to other cities that, you know, that like attract top hospitality talent. Um, Vegas is still very reasonable, but yeah, if you come here with like a short-term plan, cause you just want to experience Vegas and have that as part of your professional and life experience. I think Vegas is great. It's, it's never dull. It's just that with the exception of the only slow parts of this of the year is like summer's a little bit slow. And then between Thanksgiving and Christmas is a little bit slow, but the rest of the years is like bonkers, mostly because the conventions, especially now there's a lot of pent up demand. But yeah, I'd say like, yeah, if you just want to experience Vegas for like two or three years, I think it's the city welcomes like outside wine talent, especially and chef talent too. You know, when you're running the wine program, what was kind of the biggest challenge for you in being a wine director for the first time? Like you did the wine manager, you know, stuff before. So you kind of got a lead into it, but when you're fully immersed in that wine director role, what is the biggest challenge in kind of your day to day? In a, in a casino environment, which is all I know outside of owning Kelly song is understanding like the politics of the building that you're in, even before purchasing, because it's really easy to overcommit and under deliver, which is really frustrating for everybody. Um, and I, I learned that really early, um, but I, I see people do it again and again. And, it, and, and it's not intentional. I think that it's just a misunderstanding of how long it takes to get something new in the building, what the pull through is, the fact that if it takes too long, something you committed to that you were really excited to have maybe sold out from underneath you. Because again, it just, it's really, there's a lot of hoops to jump through because although you may be in charge of one particular room, and even if it's like a star chef and you have a star wine program, that's not enough to get what you're hoping to work with. You often have a chain of command that a couple of things are need to go into consideration is, is there a wine director at the property? If so, being in sync with them, nothing more important. Okay. Is if there's not a wine director, who's in charge of purchasing, being in sync with that person, because a lot of external factors can affect what you're hoping to accomplish. Because I mentioned that boom and bust cycle about Las Vegas, when budgets are turned on, they're turned on, but it, nobody necessarily tells you as like a, as a wine director of X room in, in this hotel that probably has, you know, at least a dozen restaurants, um, if not more, even if only a handful of them are wine focused, but that message doesn't necessarily get down to you. So you need to figure out, have a plan that would be reasonable. I'd say have 10 to 12 items in your queue, but knowing that maybe half of them will get through, you know, communicating with whatever, whatever there's the sales rep manager, that distributor, over communicating to them and also building in some wiggle room to that time frame. I'll give you like a specific example. And this is when I was at Bardo. You know, for a long time we were looking for a really affordable cohort, which is not easy to find in Vegas. It was brought in. I think it's still represented with um, 
with like DNS, which was a kind of a, a new supplier at the time. Like they had spun off from Martins and a couple of people who used to work for Martins portfolio. So getting that in and knowing that we had committed to it, the product was here, getting the item number set up, which is required to bring a product into these hotel settings took a really long time. And just because it's set up with corporate, it has to get um, turned on by this property, then stock controlled by the wine director or whoever the admin is in charge of for that outlet. So I can't emphasize like the amount of steps. And I only know this because of, because of that role that I had at Bellagio, like I was used to that system. And the learning curve can be really frustrating for people who are used to open, like running a restaurant that has real doors and windows. You know, like if you're inside a casino, it's like you don't have real doors and windows and the rules are different. So just emphasizing that the lead time, um, luckily most distributors kind of already understand that. But just, it's like you can't over-communicate in that setting. But then on the flip side, there is some workarounds. We'll use um, like St. Combe if you have a if another restaurant within the building. And at the, when I was working at Bardot, Sage is no longer, but it was like an awesome restaurant. And it was Sean McLean's restaurant and um, had also like top wine talent there. And they had a deep, deep French program. And so I would go in and see like, hey, are there existing numbers that have already things that have already been ordered that are still on hand at the distributor. So I would kind of run through and like take a screenshot from Stratton Warren, which is the purchasing program they use, which is like ancient. It's a dinosaur. And I'd take a screenshot to my rep at the time. And I'd just be like, hey, do you have any of the St. Comb on hand? And like lo and behold, out of like the dozen and a half SKUs that I took a screenshot of, there were like two or three everything matched up the pack size because it's not just the description it's like the pack size can't change if it has a vintage description it has to match otherwise the doc will reject it and they do accept like updates on purchase on the pack the like price because we know price is the most fluid thing in the wine industry that changes so i was just like over the moon that i got in three SKUs of saint comb and i was like oh yeah my like rome wine list like just like the section just got fleshed out when it was almost bare bones even though I know those, like, I think it's helpful to give very specific examples because if I just say it like, oh yeah, it takes forever to get product in. But I think just being smart about like reverse engineering the purchasing process, if you can, um, again, there's nuances to every property. The real gems though, being a SOM in the city is there are a couple star wine programs that are independent, that are kind of placed within these casinos that have, that are not part of this like purchasing hierarchy. So examples of that would be um, like Delmonico at Venetian because Venetian rents out a lot of the spaces. They have spaces that they also own and manage. Delmonico can order like order fire, which is awesome. They can like get stuff and deliver super easy. It still has to like, you know, be received through their dock. It's not like coming through the front of their door, but so there's still checks and balances, but they're not like rejecting things just because they're not set up. So I, like there are some exceptions to the rule. Another example of that would be like Bouchon, also at the Venetian, Lacave at Wynn. I don't know yet. Fountain Blue's opening up. I have no idea if they're going to have independent licenses. But at Cosmo, like Zuma is independent. Those programs, when you walk into and you're like, oh, okay, like these programs are dynamic and they're fun and they have all these really like cool stuff. Like it's because there are those exceptions to the rule where they're independent license and not part of the casino umbrella. But you would never know that as a customer. Like how would you? You do the wine director thing, you get back into sales for a little bit and then 2020 happens and that's when you start Kelly Som. Where did the idea come from for Kelly Som and launching this Pretty much it's in, you know, for people that don't know or haven't looked yet, it's an online e-commerce uh, site 
you ship to seven different states, but it's all curated by you. I have more questions on it, but like, where did you get the initial idea to launch this from? The initial idea was during the pandemic, I thought I just like, it was not as bad as I thought it was going to be. I mean, it was really hard for the industry, but I thought, wow, like this is going to take Las Vegas into the dark ages with wine because there's only so many distributors that, again, it wasn't as bad as I thought, but there are only so many distributors that can typically weather like a storm, like we all did in the industry and like everybody else, everybody has their like COVID trauma, right? Because it like upended, there are like very few people who came out on top of that, especially in, in food and beverage. It was really hard for a lot of people. And so although a lot of restaurants and like the rules and regulations were loosened a little bit to help um, these establishments like generate revenue. I thought, okay, so if some of the wholesalers don't weather this storm, we're going to be left with like three big wholesalers. And I thought, what are going to, what's going to happen to all this like niche product that already struggles in Las Vegas? Because although we're a busy city, we're not as dynamic as a lot of, I think industry professionals would like us to be and what we offer. So that idea was like, okay, well, there's going to be a lot of inventory that isn't going to have a home. And, and although there's, I've learned a lot of, along the way is like, it was really hard to get Kelly some started because of the licensing and I'll get into that. But I thought, okay, there's an opportunity here to grab product and have it listed and sell it and just kind of like be a stopgap until things get better with, so it was very idealistic. Like my intentions behind it was like very much like, all right, well, maybe I could be a place where this inventory goes. And it's not like I'm the only game in town. Like there's other, we do have um, some independent retail, not not a lot, but a few independent, like traditional brick and mortar retail, but nobody was doing e-com. And in my past life, before I was married and had it like, you know, a, like a small child, I would have probably volunteered myself up to be like a more traditional brick and mortar business. But at the time, like I had already, I just had, my son and I wanted to be part of the solution. And this is also very strategic because we know like in our industry, because of the laws and the three tier system is like, you really, if you work in the industry, it's really hard to like take a step back and get a license. That's the, I don't know if it'll ever change. Like, I think that's what a lot of people don't understand about our industry is it's the barrier to entry is so high. You basically have to leave the industry in order to like even be allowed to submit, put your name on like for a license. You can't, you can't be a buyer. You can't work for a wholesaler. You can't work for a supplier. So because I was essentially like on permanent furlough and then separated from my sales job, I looked right on paper and I recognized that that was a moment in time. And, you know, we, we were, everybody I knew in the industry, at least in this town was like literally on unemployment. So I was like, okay, well I checked with my tax um, professional and I was like, is there any rule against being on unemployment and like starting a business because I don't have revenue yet. It's going to take me a minute to like get the license lined up. It takes months to go through that process. And then also like convincing the city to develop a new license for e-com. So I went through that process. The whole thing took about nine months. You don't know what you don't know. And in this instance, like I was really determined and I made it through that. And I used my savings to start Kelly Song, but there's like, and I think like the, I think it's important to share because I think everybody who wants to own their business should absolutely like aspire to do so. I think that the reality of getting started in the alcohol sector is just, um, it's not quick to turn on. So yeah, the, the, the focus and the passion is always like, I want to 
I want to show wines and have wines be available to those who are interested that are niche and support the industry and hopefully have the industry in Las Vegas specifically to always be striving to have small production. We're still kind of scratching the surface on natural and low intervention wine, but also supporting those suppliers who traditionally haven't entered the Las Vegas market because it's like, why would they? It was so hard to get put in these casinos and to get traction with this with the distributor and not get lost in the shuffle and like get forgetting about in the corner of some warehouse and get put on closeout. That's a real reality. And so I thought, you know what? Sometimes all a supplier needs is to show that like a case or two or three went somewhere in order to stay in the market and not abandon Nevada and go to the coastal areas. And again, very altruistic. But that's still like the goal. And so it took me nine months to get the approval for the license. I couldn't get the actual license and up and operational until I had a warehouse and the zoning. The zoning is not logical at all when it comes to alcohol. We'll all recognize that. The zoning is very strict. The city of Las, the North Las Vegas gave me the green light. But even within then, finding a warehouse that was not 400 feet, not just like to the door of like my of my actual leased unit in the warehouse district, but it's like the entire footprint of these giant like conglomerate owned, you know, like warehouse lots within 400 feet of that entire footprint. You can't have a church, a school, a daycare, a grow house because Nevada cannabis, of course, like it's a great market to be in cannabis because the tourism industry. And so, and there's a ton of grow houses in Nevada in these warehouse districts because we were, I don't remember in what order we were, we legalized it on a state level, but we were pretty early on. So there's just grow houses and dispensaries everywhere. Churches, when I say churches, I also learned that there's, it's not like a church is not a church is not a church. If it's some sort of religious order that's classified as a nonprofit, which I don't understand that, that why there's so many. But there are so many businesses that check that nonprofit religious box that also occupy these warehouse business spaces. So it took me a really long time to find a space. And those are all the reasons why. With the license that you had to get, was that created because there was no previous e-commerce licenses? So like you were the first one to go through that, basically pave the path. 100%. And, and to my knowledge, nobody else has gotten one, which I'm shocked. And maybe probably because it's like very limiting and kind of that, again, all those hoops you have to jump through is it's 2020. And I'm like, nobody asked. And then, you know, if you look at, if you go to Henderson or the city of Las Vegas, and I hope that somebody from like Henderson or the city of Las Vegas, like, you know, one day will listen to this, to this segment is they just said no. And I hired, like I hired a lawyer to help me with all of this. And cause I, I mean, I'm not going to pretend like I did this on my own. Like I set aside a certain part of my opening you know, budget to pay for legal counsel because alcohol is so specific. And they advised me early on the city of North Las Vegas is where you want to go. But I did ask the city of like Vegas proper because there's three in, in Southern Nevada, technically there's like three cities. And so um, North Vegas is also like the warehouse space is a little more reasonable, but Henderson was really tough because they said no, but then they kind of changed their stance and said, well, we have to have like a neighborhood committee vote on it. And I was just like, okay, so you want me to like secure a warehouse or an office space that meets zoning requirements, but then wait for a neighborhood to vote on whether or not I can get a license. And I was like, no, thank you. Because what happens like now I'm stuck in a lease I'm paying for, like, I have to hope that some neighborhood group that 
it's pro wine gives me the green light. And I was like, no, thanks, Henderson. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. That's just not, that doesn't seem like a good plan of a, a good plan. So North Vegas is it. And I, there's other beverage professionals like um, Garagis has a great wine program. And, you know, um, the owner, Eric, he's really trying, like he's trying to make a case for this, for them to be able to have e-com. And it's, I hope he has success because it's outdated. It's archaic. Maybe in our lifetime, maybe maybe there'll be a change, but there's a lot of red tape and taxes and a lot at stake for, you know, not just for Nevada, but, you know, that's a larger conversation. If they ever simplified the route to market for alcohol industry, a lot of people we know would like lose their jobs, but it would be more efficient. And, but I mean, this is like outside Nevada, but I, I heard one time, not just a few years ago, Somebody who, there was a doctor who owns a distillery in Kentucky. And he said that when he was going through the process of getting his distillery and going through the nuances of Kentucky, which are just as nuanced as what I went through in Nevada, if not more so, is that when he had to check with the fire code and make sure that they were up to code again before like even opening their operation, he learned off the record that 50% of the revenue for the city that his license was in was collected through the alcohol industry. And just hearing a stat like that, that's not like published. It was just like a something like a, a piece of information that got dropped to him from somebody in the fire, you know, who is a fire marshal. And I was like, no wonder why they'll never dismantle the three-tier system because like cities rely on this revenue. Like in some parts of the country, heavily. Kentucky, I mean, I'm sure 50% is pretty high, but like the revenue that's collected through the taxation of the three-tier system is like, what would cities do? It's kind of that old saying, that old adage, like you start with $100, but you really only needed $25, but you had to start with the 100 because the 75 has got to get siphoned off to everybody else along the way. Now that the operation is like up and running, I just am like, okay, there's like just the fact that you make it that far, let alone becoming a, a sustainable business. Yeah, but exactly. You start with 100 licensing and permits and taxation. I mean, that's why it's sometimes worth a plane ticket just to buy yourself a, a nice trip to Europe and go experience it there, you know, without three middlemen in the middle. And I don't want to create an argument against our industry, but like assuming that most of our audience here is industry, like they get it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's all applicable to other industries too, as well. Like you hear about even like different, is it 501c, like nonprofit charitable organizations? Like there's always stuff that comes out that it's like, yeah, well, if you donate a dollar, like 92 cents of that dollar doesn't actually go to the, like the cause that you're donating to, you know, it goes to administrative and it goes to paying the staff for this and marketing and all this other stuff. So um, it definitely crosses industries. When you were applying for the license, you mentioned some of the rules. So you couldn't be working as a wine sales professional, could you be working on a floor as a sommelier or was that not allowed either? Not as a buyer. You can't have direct influence. Technically, not supposed to be working on the floor in any capacity when it comes to like even handling alcohol. You know how they're like, there's certain things where you're like, how would you, if you're not in charge of purchasing, like how would they enforce that? I know for sure it's like, you can't be a buyer. You can't be a license holder while simultaneously selling and or 
like, cause you know, they get, you go through like a back, it's like a full on FBI background check. And when people are like, think that we're misfits in this industry as a blanket statement, I'm like, no, like you literally have to go through you it is like a straight up FBI background check. So like you have to have some sort of, it's a privileged license, like any alcohol license and um, on-premise, off-premise, you name it, the nuances, like, you know, e-com at the time of the application, absolutely cannot. Like they ask for your income records, they cross-reference it with whatever. And, you know, they even asked about like, because my husband's in the spirits industry and he's not part of like the ownership of Kelly Som, it's just me. And like, they, you know, were asked about that. And as a female, I was kind of like, my friends told me to like calm down a little bit. I was like, are you implying that I was not able to save up the amount that it took to like start the business? And of course I provided like 10 years worth of income statements stated, you know, like, and like, of course, ultimately accepted my answer, but also to me at the time felt like a little bit like if I were to reverse my gender, like what have you asked if that was mine? Because like, you know, so like all of these things were taken into consideration. And I know that's like, you know, getting a little bit sensitive about that. But I thought to myself, I was like, wow, it's really, I'm so happy to have gone through the process because I always, I thought it was a little bit easier than it really was like in I feel like once I, once I'm really determined to start something, like I'll finish it. But even with like, now that the company's up and running, I always knew that because I am self-funded that I would have to do something else. So I do, I do work in addition to Kelly Som. And so my workaround for that, which again, like super industry connected, and that's the way of our industry is when the opportunity arose and I saw there was like an opening is so 750 got acquired by Provi. So there was a job posting for a remote. Um, it's, it's basically, they call it a distributor account manager, but it's a marketing company. You know, they're a platform, like they're not directly selling it. So like from a compliance standpoint, it's a, it's marketing is okay. Like basically marketing is like in the ether up here. It's not supplier. It's not distributor. It's not being a restaurant, you know, a buyer for a restaurant program. Marketing lives in this, this like other kind of like, it's almost like it's part of the atmosphere of our industry. You know, it like doesn't touch it. Like we don't touch it. It's just up there, at least from like a, a conceptual, like how can you own e-com and Kelly Som and then still. So I was able to take my skill set and my understanding of all that encompasses our industry and apply it in this um, emerging e-com B2B marketplace. And so I've been, I've been there for like, a couple months, it'll be like two years. So I work in BevAlk tech in addition to Kelly Som, which actually gives me a lot of ideas to develop the site. And, you know, I learn every day. So with Kelly Som, because you're able to ship to seven states, is that requirement part of the licensing or like, what's the reason for the seven states? Because it's uh, Nevada, Wyoming, Idaho, Oregon, California, Florida, and DC, which is technically not a state, but seven places. Why is it only those seven currently? I chose to use UPS from the get-go as my shipper, and I have to be in line with the areas that they service based on what they understand. And this is constantly, this is like a moving target because FedEx has slightly different standards than like UPS. And I just wanted to get, and this is where it gets granular with like the business side of it is if you like spread your shipments through two different carriers, you don't get to take advantage of like 
like a special rate because you're not meeting a, a minimum, right? And so it's like that. It's like that. It's just like the mechanics of the business. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go with UPS. They were a little bit easier from the get go to get set up with. Um, who knows? I could easily shift over to FedEx if I wanted to, but they have a grid and it's state by state and it's it's very complicated to even decipher. They have a grid and they update it like every two years. They have all the states that if you have a winery license, you could ship to, but then there's another grid that says like retail license. And then it's based on the state law. It's based on the origin of this. So Nevada is the origin state. There's some states where it's like reciprocal. It reminds me of like college tuition, like you're a good neighbor rate, but it's the first, the alcohol version. So there's reciprocal states depending on the origin that origin state that your license is held in. California is like the gold standard. California, if you have a license based in California, you can ship to like 45 states. It's pretty incredible. So I'm I'm at a disadvantage having from like that aspect, but I, I say disadvantage. I don't necessarily look at it that way. Like obviously the cost of living, the cost of doing business, licensing, taxes, all very much higher in California. So because I'm niche, Seven states actually works perfect for me, but I, um, so DC, Florida, California, all of that is like automatic, no special submissions. Like it's just kind of like, you know, I just could automatically turn those states on Wyoming, Idaho, Oregon. I mean, I'm trying to make sure if I don't forget any states. Yeah. Wyoming, Idaho, Oregon and Nevada. I have to submit, even though Nevada is my home base, but of course submit like monthly reporting, the reporting load is pretty heavy for those, but that's why it's seven states. I would love to service more. I've recently identified one or two other target states I could easily turn on. I just need to um, change. Like I actually, from an operation standpoint, I had to change my settings on my Ecom platform that services the store because it would allow people from outside of these zones to place an order. And I always felt like such a jerk being like, I'm sorry, like, A, here's your refund. And B, like, I'm sorry, you just spent... 25 minutes of your life building an order that you can't have because it's illegal to ship to you. I hope one day that that isn't the case because it's really like, there's an argument to be said, you're being penalized for living in the wrong state according to like our laws. And like, I'm sorry that you can't enjoy the same wine just based on your geographical location. To me, fundamentally, that's wrong, but like it is what it is. And the, and shipping um, to a state where it's not allowed is just like the risk. There's not a lot of upside to taking the risk you know if you're caught like the consequences are pretty steep it's like you know like there's a monetary fine they can revoke your license i mean they treat wine although it's a natural product it's like treated like an explosive which has always been super bizarre to me but it is what it is i would love it i would love it if by the time before we're like old and gone i would love it if they just let us ship wine They're like taxes like take your cut taxes, but like, could we just ship everywhere? That would be huge if that happened. So essentially, if you want to ship to more states, you have to go and almost get like an individual license for each additional state. For the states who allow it, there's some states who only allow intra... I'll send you a document later that you can you can look at. They only... Like, um, for example, Colorado is one of them. Colorado, I can't ship to. I have a bunch of friends because I grew up in Wyoming. So it was like really important for me. And I know we acknowledged that at the beginning of the, the conversation, but it was really important for me to be able to service like family and friends that I grew up with, even if it's like a little bit of a distance, you know, shipping wise to get there because like it's there, it's Wyoming's a control state, but they allow me to pay for my license and they take their cut. And there's like, you know, 
like all the reporting, they only allow so much per year, per address. So it's still monitored, but like at least they say that there's a path to, to go to market there. In Colorado, it's just a hard no. It doesn't matter how bad I want to ship there, there's no workaround. And if you look at their current rules, they allow, if that at all, actually, you have to look closer interstate shipping. So like if you're a retailer based in Colorado, I think you can ship within the within that state. Um, but if you're a holder license outside as a retail license, I can't ship into there. And so it's a little bit of protectionism. I could see the, even though I don't like it, I could see the logic behind it. And like the law is the law. So like, you know, obviously I can't service that state, but that's just one specific example. But if you were in California, the answer might be different. I would have to look and see how, because they could ship to 45 states. I think it's like only some of the hard, hard school, like control states like Utah and things like that, you know? So I think it's just like that origin that California has positioned itself, which is why all those larger wine clubs are like based out of California, like having the license originate in California. And I also think too, is like the reason not to say that I don't have domestic representation. I have like a limited amount of domestic representation in the store, but there's a reason that I focus on imports is like as a wine professional, I personally find a little bit higher, um, like, like dollar for dollar, you tend to get it's just the cost of getting wine from Europe and the and the subsidies and their mentality behind it. It's a little more competitive dollar for dollar. But like I get, I mean, like domestic, if you want to buy domestic wineries, like I almost would rather tell somebody, although I appreciate the business, but I almost want to tell them like you should order direct from an Oregon, Washington, California winery if you can like it's better for them like they get to keep the profit it helps like keep their business up and running and you probably have better access than what i can get because by the time it got sent to nevada and then i it's just like it's not the best like business move to be like oh you should go buy from them directly but like from a wine consumption standpoint if you like domestic wine you should always try to buy direct from that winery if you can and that's why i also like i I happen to personally lean more towards the old world and be a little more excited about that those profiles and like you know that cooler climate um you know expression but there's also a business argument to be made for being a little heavy in the old world versus new world yeah you're pretty like european and, and spain focused with kind of a, a lot of your interests and, and what you kind of carry so with kind of that and that being your main grouping it seems like most sommeliers like in the u.s kind of gravitate towards those regions too is that just because like when you start coming up through your career american wines you know napa sonoma all that stuff is pretty readily accessible so you kind of get i want to say like you get bored of it but it's like it's always there so then when you find the stuff that's in europe and you're like whoa what is this like it kind of brings that level of excitement with it and that's why because most people you know we'll get to a question later but most people, when you ask them, like, what's, you know, their favorite region and stuff like that, like, it's not Napa, it's not Californian wine, like, it's always somewhere else. For me, with wine, I'll never state this, like, often enough, is wine is so subjective. And there are exceptions to the rule, but I'll tell you first, before I go into what I like about Europe, of what my own avoidance is of domestic of like leaning domestic and there is an audience for it. So like, I'm, you know, obviously they've been so successful because they have an audience, but lifetime as wine professionals, 
there's like the extreme success of parkerization, the scoring system, that following is a very serious following. And so like they already know how to get what they want to get. And that style, which is like tends to be extracted, super bold. To me, it's almost the equivalent of like drinking Coca-Cola, but like the adult version. And it's not that they want those wines can because they can be artisanal and small production. But the the trend to be included in like that roster of score wines, they got so rich and so bold and so alcoholic. I don't personally find them enjoyable to drink. And again, it doesn't mean that for some people, those aren't like they hit you over the head and they're really like have a lot to say and very obvious. I always thought with food and, and like I said, like, I don't want to make people feel bad if that's what they like, um, because there is absolutely an audience for that. I think with food and wine, like better together. And so I'm always like leaning towards, and it may just be how I cut my teeth early on with the examples, especially how I mentioned like those verticals from like Germany and Austria, and then like moving into like the rest of the wine world, but they're all high acid. And if they do have sweetness, there's still acid to back them up and cool climate examples. And so like, to me, that became the gold standard early on. And I personally gravitate towards those. And so that cool climate in Europe, which like they're, for the most part, their climate is much cooler than the, than the US. That's like the driving factor. There's the romance. There's absolutely the romance behind like European wine industry. And also it comes to market at often a more competitive price quality for quality. And there's a couple of reasons why is like, they don't tend to have, and again, there's always exceptions to the rule, but as a general statement, they don't have the extreme capital overhead that like all these new wineries in the US do like most wineries in the US are quite new they have heavy debt burden they have to go to market just to sustain at a higher price and all of that there's no subsidies the tax we talked about the three tier system the tax rate all of those factors together is like a tremendous headwind in my opinion to them being competitive in the market and i'm so glad like the boomers are a phenomenon like if they want to pay $100 average for a cab, like have at it, but the boomers are getting older. So I don't know where their market is. Like maybe they're going to be sending it all to Asia, which is like, you know, or other parts of the world or just, you know, they're, like I said, there is an audience for it, but like they have some, uh, some strong, strong headwinds in Europe. We know that there's like right now an overproduction problem, which is like, I know a separate conversation, but they have an advantage in that they have a really strategic export market globally. They tend to have land wineries, subsidies their land and their wineries for the most part for those really old estates have already been paid for i'm not saying that they don't have to put like modern equipment in and things like that but there is an argument for how they go to market and that they don't have such an intensive capital load so they can go to market at a more reasonable price and also food and beverage in europe is considered more of like an everyday right to have like high quality fresh and that acidity that just comes with the territory of the cool climate they already have pretty much for the most part identified the best sites, the best region that's kind of just ingrained in the culture. And so they're already ahead of the curve in their production. And most importantly, like the style is what I get most excited about. And that's again, a blanket statement. Like we can go into the nuances of like, there's tremendous value in Austria and the Czech Republic more so than there is in France right now. Like France has awesome wine, but it's gotten really expensive in the last 20 years. I mean, I think about like, the stuff that I was like 
introduced to early on and like this so out of reach now like it's crazy to see what's happened like you can't get Bourgogne Blanc and Bourgogne Rouge hardly at all for like a price that most people are willing to even if you can get it honestly like it's kind of like hey if you get it but it's also just like it's doubled if not tripled and so you lean to these other areas where the quality is high and the demand hasn't caught up and like I'm sure those areas will you know be discovered because the global demand is quite competitive yeah, I mean, dollar for dollar, like specific examples, I tend to specialize in that $35 to $50 range. You can get a lot of wine, retail price, $35 to $50. And of course, that would be a higher markup in restaurants, but it's super hard to get a great bottle of domestic wine for $35, unless you're at source. If you're like at the winery at their door, but by the time it goes to market and it's just like, it's hard to find really high quality domestic wine for under $50. And even for then that's like really high for some people to like purchase for wine. So I think 35, if I try, I can, the goal is like to support the Nevada market, keep things interesting, not the solution. I just want to be part of the solution, but I also want to keep it accessible. That's like still can, I kind of have to like always bring it back to that is like, what was the main goal as I myself navigate like shipping costs and like packaging costs and it's been a really interesting journey. Nevada and Wyoming are still my primary markets, even though I have customers in those other states. With how you build out your wine portfolio, the stuff that's available, is that stuff coming directly to you from the wineries in Europe? Or are you kind of going through the wholesalers and distribution people in Nevada, almost like raiding their sellers and like finding the cool stuff that's in there? that is not going to move to a casino because you know the casino market so well, you can find stuff that they have sitting there and you're like, this isn't going to move, but I'm going to be able to get it because this stuff is awesome. And I can incorporate it into my online shop or the wine club. Yes. To, to all of those is dynamic, but yes, to a lot of that, like, Hey, you've had this for a while or like, Hey, I see you have it, or you're going to be getting some, can I special order? It's a combination thereof. And because I understand this market well, I definitely leverage that. That was like definitely part of like the game plan. I was like, how can I utilize this institutional knowledge of the Nevada market without over leveraging myself as I'm getting started? I absolutely love shopping like pre-sales, but I also have learned that that's not the only way. Shopping um, from programs that overcommitted and couldn't take it sometimes. And I hate this, like the least preferred way. And a lot of people get excited to buy on closeout. I don't get super excited because it's usually not a good sign. If something's on closeout, it means that they're probably not coming back to the state. And that's like the cycle that my mentors early on, like I learned that from them is that although yes, like buying something and the wine quality is like, there's nothing wrong with the wine. It's just a business decision from a distributor to close something out because they've held it too long because they have to pay taxes on it, inventory on their floor. So if they've had something and, you know, the bean counter of, of their organization, it needs to go. That's what happens with wine and, and um, all too often, but it is not, I don't think it's something the industry should get excited about because it usually means that supplier is not going to send that back to this market. That's the last thing they want to happen. They probably could have taken that product somewhere else and like sold it very quickly in New York or Chicago or even somewhere in California or the West Coast. So you have a wine club too, and it's a little different. So you can go to the website, you can buy individual bottles and have them ship, but you also have a wine club where you kind of curate different like boxes almost. When focusing on the wine club aspect, how much research did you do 
beforehand to kind of look at everybody else's wine club because wine clubs are becoming big now. A lot of people are just any independent shop or anything like that, they'll put together a wine club. So how much research did you do beforehand to kind of try and find something that differentiates from what others are doing? Because I haven't really seen anybody do that. I've seen people have like three bottles a month. You could pick out of these six. I've seen them do like, you know, two or three bottles. They pick, you just trust them. But you're kind of doing something like that, but adding the extra layer of like, there's themes to it in a way as well. So how did you kind of formulate all that? Because, you know, I've been in the wine world for almost 20 years now. I thought like for me, it's second nature. If somebody reaches out to me and is like, I want to order a six pack of, you know, like the enthusiast or 12 pack of the entertainer. And not every personality type is going to like, just let somebody build out a shipment. Like some people, like if they're type A, obviously they're most likely going to like want to pick every single bottle. And that's, that's fine too. But for people who are like comfortable giving me the reins, I actually, I love it. It kind of reminds me of like being on the floor. If somebody what comes in and they're like, I love Pinot, but like I'm open to Pinot Noir-esque. And I'm like, oh my gosh, can we go to Rioja? Cause cool climate to Bernio. Can we go to like, if you don't mind a little funk, can we go to Slovenia and get, you know, like um, Rafosk, you know, and like, it's kind of funky, but like there's these high tone red fruit. We can go to Piedmont, even though Piedmont's not cost effective, but like you can go to Nerella Mascalese. And I mean, I'm not going, I'm thinking, of course I have like Pinot Noir blends that aren't hundred percent Pinot Noir, but coming from Czech Republic, like Nestrak. And you can take people to Mencia also like, you know, that's like an argument depending on like who you're talking to. Some people are like, oh, Mencia drinks more like Syrah. And I'm like, I don't think so. I think Mencia drinks very similar to Pinot. So in an instance like that, like I would, where I can, all like an average would be that 35-ish like per bottle in that, in that shipment. But sometimes like it's a little bit higher quality. Sometimes, you know, it's a little more value driven, but like the average of what I'm putting together in that shipment reflects, of course, what's being sent to them while giving me the creativity and the know-how of like keeping it interesting and educational. One thing that has been, um, I haven't figured out because it is like the, the wine club that I have is highly customizable. I have people who are like only want white wines and they kind of give me feedback on what I send. And like, you know, like I love Sauvignon Blanc, but oh my God, I really love this fun winning Sauvignon Blanc that you sent me. Like I've never had anything like it. And I'm like, okay, score. That's like, that's awesome. You know? And cause like, I don't, I mean, nothing, I, New Zealand does a good job, but like you can find New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc everywhere, maybe even in your C store, like at this point, I get excited to to take those tidbits of feedback and, and likes or dislikes and tailor around them and then get that feedback from them. It's, you know, it kind of reminds me of working the floor, but I just don't get to see their immediate response. Have you had anybody place an order and have it shipped to a hotel room at one of the casinos, like in advance of them, like arriving, like they know they're coming to Las Vegas. They know they're going to be staying at this property. So they like place an order and it's like, and you see the address and you're like, oh, that's a hotel. I, I think most people have not. That's not a huge part of my business. I think that would be interesting, but it's a good, it's a good question. It's a workaround if you live in a, one of the non-seven states that you, you know you can't ship to. If you're coming to Vegas, that is, and you want to get wine. I would love if people reached out in advance and were like, can we coordinate like, uh, because I my license is like, requires me to ship. There are creative ways to fulfill that. I could ship to like a friend who lives in Nevada, obviously 21 plus. Could I ship to a hotel in advance? The timing is a little difficult to nail down, 
there's potential there. I say potential because I think that like a one-off would be fine, but I think that if it was like too frequent, I think the hotels that would protect, they would protect their own interest and like their in-room dining list. And they might, because that's not a thing historically for my business. We'll see. But you know, what is really exciting is that we have Vegas. People come and go all the time, not just for visiting, but it's like super transient in the way that people come live here for a couple of years and they leave. So many people coming from California who are leaving for economic reasons. And then when they bring with them, they bring with them typically like a cash out of selling a house at a high price, coming here, getting a house for a fraction of the price. And then they start looking around and going, okay, well, like I'm used to all these amenities that are just kind of like everywhere in California and Vegas is still developing those amenities. I mean, even just simple things like having our own sports team is pretty new. And we're missing the middle for a long time, like in everything, not just wine, missing the middle, but missing the middle and like some basic services. So some of my new clientele, like in the last year, are people moving from uh, more sophisticated markets that are used to having like natural wine. And although we don't like, obviously Vegas has no shortage of like industry talent, but when people are just like, it's really hard to find natural wine here, I'm happy that they stumble across my site. And although I have like some classic examples too, The natural part has been, it's just nice to get some positive feedback that they were struggling to find that here in the city and that like I'm able to service that for them. And also some like non-elk too, that's high quality. That's like an interesting space as well. And yeah, I'm sure too, like you may already have had a podcast um, or a session on it, but the non-elk development side of our industry and de-alkalized wine is, is like something that I'm personally very curious about because there's only a few good examples and there's not well represented in this market. I'm curious to see where that, where that goes because it's like not part of the traditional conversation, but uh, lights who like the Einstein zero um, I become fond of is like really high quality uh, that gets really popular. Like people order it all the time. It's just like through the trinuary like package that I offer. So I was not expecting that. Is that the the company, are they based out of like Germany? So Alights is like a, a legit, okay, so I learned, I'll share like what I learned with you is they are based out of Germany. Lights is like a full on, like highly respected, like winery, right? They do everything from everyday, like Riesling, dry style, sweet styles, also single site. Like they're, they have a great, great lineup of traditional um, wines, but they also have this specialized dealkalized lineup and for a hundred years, and it was a shock to me when I learned that for a hundred years, Germany specifically has been dealkalizing beer and wine, like a normal offering. And it's all the rage, of course, like now in the US to, to go dry. And for good health reasons, some people just, just can't like metabolize alcohol easily. And I, I respect that. Like you, you know, you don't want to consume something if it doesn't make you feel good. I was educated by by the supplier and distributor that like in tap houses in Germany, which I have to look now the next time I go is there's always a line dedicated to dealkalize beer. Maybe, I don't know, you're having like a morning meeting and you just have a lot to accomplish and you don't want alcohol yet. Like that's it. Some people for the straight up like allergy reason, they have this dedicated line. So for the wine, the way they accomplish keeping like the quality high is it goes through um, a vacuum distillation process, which is it doesn't get above 70 degrees. They keep it between 60 and 70 degrees. So it doesn't damage the integrity and the, like the 
flavor profile of the wine, but then there's this vacuum component that helps separate the alcohol molecule from the production. And that is typically done at like a higher, you know, just traditional distillation rate, but because they don't want to damage the quality of it, but they've been doing this for like a hundred years and they patented the, the, I can't remember the name of the, of the um, individual who patented it, but like he realized early on that like nobody else was doing this. And so he patented it and they, it's pretty commonplace there. Um, So I think that we'll see what happens. Like if it becomes a, a niche category, I welcome it because the wines actually taste really good. Like a lot of the the non-alcohol wine to me almost tastes like vinegar in a way. I actually have grabbed a couple like off the grocery store shelf just to compare it. Cause I'm like, I kind of want to understand the category better and they're not very expensive, but like when you drink them, I agree with your assessment. Like something's wrong. Like it's almost like they were mistreated and mishandled. I'm pretty sure that there is a certain amount of the production out there that's been heat damaged through that dealkalization process. Um, and of course, we're not talking about like substitutes like proxy, like they, you know, that's like obviously like a different, you know, this is not like traditional wine, but for traditional wine, yeah, a lot of it just straight up doesn't taste good. And I, I think they're using the cheaper mainstream distillation method, which absolutely damages the integrity of the wine and, and makes it taste flawed. Um, so that like lights is the only one. I'm also very excited to like get my hands on some other examples, but I haven't yet. So I haven't, can't talk about those. Yeah. Do you have a overall goal with Kelly song that you're kind of working towards like something, you know, that you'd like to achieve by year five or whatever? Like, do you have like a overall kind of path or vision that you want to see the business grow into? I'll tell you like what I thought would happen versus like what's actually happened. So marketing is tough in the alcohol space because you can't just straight up market alcohol because it's Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. You name it, like, I'm sure that there are strategic workarounds, but like on the surface, you can't market alcohol. So it's very word of mouth, very niche, which is, which is appropriate for like, I mean, I'm a micro business, so it's appropriate for that, but it was a lot harder to get customers that I didn't already know personally or who weren't like friends of friends or like word of mouth, which the ROI is always so much higher on word of mouth because you like trust people, you know, and their feedback. And it's just, it has a more weight than just seeing something like flash across your your phone or your computer. But it's been a little bit harder to scale than I anticipated. So my initial thought was like, oh, I'm going to take it from like sustainability to the profitability mark, like in the first three years. And getting there was like a little bit of a slower clip than I expected. And then navigating, shipping overall has been like pretty straightforward. But I'll say that like scaling, not that it was like never a goal to like scale too much, but that's taken longer than I expected. However, though, with the flexibility of the warehouse space that I have, and because it's acquired by the license, I'm currently like looking at like keeping keeping on going with what I'm doing with Kelly Som, looking at areas that are a little bit less regulated. For example, dealkalized product because it's easier to ship outside of those seven states. Nothing I can like talk about like in depth yet, but I'm looking at connecting with like wholesale directly for that. Fleshing out the non-alc offering a little bit more selfishly too is when I started Kelly Som, I was still like drinking wine like normal. I don't know whether it's not because like sometimes this happens to women after having kids. I don't know if it was COVID, the vaccine, who knows, 
But like, I actually have developed like an allergy to alcohol, which is like total curveball, right? When I drink, I have to drink like very little, but it's kind of made me feel like, okay, never in a million years, my reaction isn't like flushing. It's like, it almost causes like an asthmatic kind of response, which is interesting, not like immediately, but like the following day. And so I had to learn it the hard way. Like I had a couple like nights out with my husband where we got like a sitter and I just felt like I was like, you know, anyways, I won't go into that, but I had to, it took me a couple of times of like having the same thing happen over and over. And I was like, I don't know, maybe this is, again, there's a number of reasons that could happen, but it made me sit back and think like, I love wine. I love the industry. I love what I'm doing. Never in a million years would I've ever expected to like come up against this like personal kind of barrier, but it made me look at the industry a little bit different. Of course, moderation, of course, absolutely still into natural wine and the profile and like what what that's about. But this whole category that happens to be less regulated, I see an opportunity. And because if I'm able to do things like get it on a wholesale level, of course, potentially, we're not talking about like a lot of SKUs, just a handful of SKUs, potentially featured on the store, but high quality, like and I'm still on the search for the best that I can find. And even if it's small product, but then I can turn around and utilize the facilities that I already have and some of the connections that I have in the city and maybe like look for a few key placements that will help me keep the operation more sustainable. Because when I talk to operators, there's headwinds. Like in the next, my long-term goal with Kelly Som is like, I worked this hard to get it this far. I want to keep it going. And I get really positive feedback from the customer base that I have because it's unique. It's a little different. has that personal touch. Figure out an additional way to maximize what I'm already paying for, which is the overhead of that warehouse. And it's not easy to pick up and move and like just like find a new place that's like lower just because of the all the things we talked about before, especially the zoning. So I've been working with the city. I come up, I've been proposing things. I haven't gotten very far because like they're not invested in it the same way that people in our industry are. They're just like, no, this is a law. I'm like, like, it's not logical that there's a lot of things that aren't logical, but that's, that doesn't matter to the city. Sometimes the more precise answer is that like, I just need to figure out how to utilize what I've set up already and look for other ways to continue to like service what I'm servicing while facing headwinds, which is like when I'm up for my lease renewal is like everybody, this is, I learned a long way, like 3% year over year is very standard in like commercial real estate. And all of my cohorts that I speak to that have brick and mortar retail stores, I'm like, can we talk about your lease? Like, what have you gone through? What happened when you resigned? What is a typical, is it also 3% year over year? And they're just like, yeah. And I was like, okay, but like, you can't keep on raising your rates to keep up with those commercial. We all figure it out together. So that's like a little bit of the difficult part, but it's also been welcomed. You know, I think that learning is like part of any business. And this is something that's not unique to me. Every restaurateur has to figure this out too. Cause they're also, unless you own your own building, which is the dream, like everybody has to figure this out. Right. I don't know if people talk about that, but like, I think it's important to talk about the reality of like, of having your own business and like people figure it out, but it is, it's been a journey. Is there, you know, a particular wine region or, you know, style that you kind of gravitate towards that's your favorite, kind of the one that sucked you into the wine world back in the day? Oh, absolutely. I think Rioja was it because, so I got my minor in Spanish and I was none the wiser at the time, but I was living in Bilbao, which of course is like the center of Basque country. 
I didn't necessarily drink great wine when I lived there, but I got to know the culture and the landscape and the climate and it all tied together when I started studying. And I was like, okay, the Bay of Biscay, like that cool influence, obviously like a super, super like interesting long history, not just culturally, but from a winemaking standpoint with Phylloxera and like all that talent that migrated during those like interesting years from Bordeaux into Rioja. And like really, although Rioja was, was doing its own thing, like it really elevated this and like, you know, the baseline skill set overnight just went from like average to like rock star with all of these famous chateaus, like they had to go somewhere to take their skill set. Some of them went to South America. A lot of them went to Spain. Some of them went to other parts of the wine world, but when they couldn't like, I think that like there, you can't remove the artist, this side of the industry. If like, if you care, some people are in it strictly for the business, but if you're in it for the business, like honestly, you're in the wrong business. There's way more, there's much more lucrative businesses to be in for like the strict business side of it. I think that like when I fa- fell in love with Rio Hawks, I like that cool climate to Bernio. Um, obviously a huge fan of Lopez de Heredia, but like who isn't like people who know those wines, like love them typically. And I just think that the story is like so real to look at from a historical perspective. So many old school historical states learning about traditional versus modern, like how that camp developed with the oak regimens and a little bit of their like um, vineyard management. But then if you peel that back before that movement happened, understanding that like Rioja really, really came to its prominence because of Phylloxera and because of these like external factors. Although I love the wine, all of these different data points to me make it so much more interesting than just what's in the glass, like, which is also really exciting to enjoy because of the high acid, that like tart red fruit, a little bit of terroir, like a little bit of that like horsehair funk, which like not everyone's into, but I really like, and it pairs great with like protein across the board. So I don't know. I just think that there's like all of these factors have to be taken into consideration and not everyone wants to know that much about their wine, which is totally okay. I think that like Sometimes if you consume something, even a glass of wine, and you don't know anything about it, but you like it, that's fine. But I think if someone takes two minutes to tell you more, like all of a sudden you hopefully have a connection with an artisanal product. Is there a region you're excited about to focus on in the near future, you know, to incorporate, whether it's within the wine club or the shop outside of, I guess, the non-alcoholic sector, which you kind of mentioned already? I have some product that I haven't listed on the site yet. I pre-ordered through um, a couple suppliers that's heavy in Greener Belt Leaner, like heavy into like dry Riesling, cool climate Pinot Noirs. So even though those aren't necessarily emerging categories or regions, they're very classic. I think that there's tremendous value and quality. And of course, with the variety of foods that they pair with, because of those, they tend to be universally, all those things I mentioned are like high acid. So I'm excited to list those on the site. I'm also excited. I don't know when this is going to happen, but one day I would love to visit Carnuntum like in Austria. And I've been to Germany a handful of times professionally, but I have never been to Austria. And so I want to go to Austria. I want to get to know, like everyone knows, of course, like Kampdahl and Krimstahl and like these more classic areas. But for natural wine, I'm super interested in going closer to like the Hungarian border near Carnuntum. I would love to see it with my own eyes, like a little more of their farming kind of heritage and like 
biodynamic, you know, like commitment and then the ultimate dream, which I'm sure like everyone wants to go to, but like, I want to go to the Czech Republic too. I want to go see, I don't know if I'll ever get to go to Nestrak because I'm sure there's like so many people who try to get their time and they're a small family run business, but I would love to go check out Czech Republic. Just again, I've never been there. And I also think that seeing, I don't know, just like hearing it from them. I think that one thing that made me understand like champagne so much better was like getting to talk to growers like in back in 2018 and like hear how they talk about their wine. And I think it just, I would love to do that for like some of the Czech and Austrian producers that I have on the site. That would be cool. But yeah, that's like more of just me getting a little bit deeper, like into my producer understanding. When you get the chance to go out for dinner or whatever with your husband, do you compulsively check the wine list when you sit down or are you able to separate and just not look at it and enjoy the experience? I used to, for like the longest time, I would compulsively read and check and I needed to understand like what all my options were. I've let go a little bit of that because I don't know if I'm just like more comfortable now with like not knowing and not having to know, try to know it all, understand it all. I also think the longer you're in the industry, although like I care tremendously about the industry and the wine world, I think like that FOMO that you have early, early on, I just don't have anymore. Do you compulsively check wine lists when you go out to eat? I mean, I look at them. Yeah, I, I do. Like here in Ohio, it's kind of, well, I don't know. I guess it's, yeah, there are certain staples that you see on everybody's wine list because of like whatever distributor. Ohio is tough because it's a, it's a control state, right? The reason I was so interested in some of like the wine list stuff is because COVID when the pandemic happened, we had a big run on people who were just, myself included, were just like ordering a bunch of alcohol because we had nothing to do. It was cold, you can't go out, like whatever. And basically the state government got really upset because people were ordering all this stuff from out of state and it was coming in. And so they weren't going to the state run liquor stores and getting their stuff or, you know, some of the wine shops and stuff like that. So they put a passed a bunch of laws and stuff that restricted a lot of being able to send stuff. So like if you go online and you're like looking for something specific out of like a big wine group or something, some of them, when you get to the shipping part and you put your state, it's like, we can't ship to Ohio. Now there are some like out of the California area that still can, but it's very interesting if you go to like a, a wine.com and you type in certain things you can find it and then you switch your state around and all of a sudden it goes away and stuff like that. So it's like so frustrating. Yeah. I, I have a, um, you know, how I mentioned that I studied in Spain. So I did that through UNLV, but I had, anyways, I had a classmate who I became close with during those years. She lives in Ohio and she works for the higher education. And when she comes to visit here, she pre-orders something that I ship to her in-law's house and she takes it back with her, like for niche stuff that she likes, because exactly, I can't ship to her in Ohio. Ohio is one of those states. It's like not even, yeah, like what you just explained. I'm like, yeah, you, and it's like, it's too bad. It's too bad because like your geography determines like your ability to enjoy certain categories just because the state doesn't offer them or the wholesaler within the state may not have that fleshed out. It's a shame. What's uh, next for you uh, professionally? I think you guys have an event coming up tomorrow, but anything else in the works for kind of the upcoming holiday season thereafter? Yes, probably later today, I'll probably publish is I have Wyoming. One of my neighbors growing up is hosting a 
wine tasting at her house. It's just like, I've never done this before, but it's popular during during COVID, of course. So I shipped in everything in advance, have a small group, and I'm going to taste it with them, go through the lineup. Um, of course, if they like something like, you know, I have inventory on hand for them to order if they choose, but I want it mostly to be about like understanding food and wine pairing basics, the educations, hopefully having a connection with the varietal, perhaps the producer, the region. Wyoming, like I said, is a control state. So their access, they'd have to traditionally, I'm one of the few people that sell into Wyoming because a lot of people treat it like a flyover state because there's not very many people who live there. But otherwise they're kind of forced to like fly to, not fly, but drive to Denver or to, I mean, yeah, mostly Denver <laughs> to go, like to go shopping for wine because Colorado has a pretty, a pretty awesome wine scene. But that's what's going on tomorrow. That should be a lot of fun. It's going to be a good learning lesson for me um, and see like, you know, if that's something that could be, uh, could catch on. I would love to do more of that. Locally here in Nevada, I do um, some pop-ups sometime, but most consistently with Yukon Pizza and their their sourdough is so awesome. They have a, their first location is in an area called Huntridge and it's like an old historic area off of Charleston and Maryland Parkway, which used to be like a, a performing arts district. And the Huntridge Theater had, you know, like the Rat Pack performing there, of course, like in addition to their casino mainstays. So there's a lot of history in this area, but they have like this little store. They have an on-premise wine license that features natural wine, but because of their licensing, you know, like they invited me in and like, I love their pizza pairing and they invited me in before their regular service hours. So the last Sunday, end of month, we do six wines, two ounces each. We shade up the theme. Um, I haven't posted it yet, but in the, the end of this month, we're going to do like a cider tasting, um, which should be fun, a little different than wine, but like natural cider is super awesome. And then um, do like a holiday class uh, with like a mid-December date, and then we'll continue that cadence. But yeah, it's like I try to keep it really accessible, $35 like per head. We max it out at 12 seats and it's fun. It's like a casual like taste wine. We talk about it not overly structured because I figured if you wanted a structured wine environment, you'd like go to the university to learn, you know? So it's, um, it's a little fluid and we talk about economics of wine. We talk about varietal profiles, natural versus classic, you know, food pairing, hopefully making it. So it's like, you know, something that people can take what they learn and um, hopefully utilize it in their day-to-day enjoyment. That's like the goal, but the pizza pairing at the end is dope because whatever wine we pick from the lineup, we always um, try to like really focus on that profile and like, you know, making sure we maximize the examples. So this next question comes from previous guest on the podcast, uh, Somalia Keegan Krikorin, who actually runs a small import wine in Cincinnati, Ohio called Ignition Wines. Uh, he left behind a question for you. What, what legacy do you hope to leave behind? Oh, wow. I never really thought of it this way, but I'm hoping that, you know, Nevada, as much as we are, we're very good at what we do, which is the tourist side of things. Like none of us would, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the casino side of our industry and just, you know, like what we do best, which is entertaining people and groups and shows and like giving them an experience. I've always, as so many, I mean, this is not, my lens is other people recognize this too, but I just was like, you know what, like Vegas at times we feel so grown up. And we feel so sophisticated when it comes to trophy wines. And like, we really excel at high volume. We excel at the guest experience and the dining experience. So we do trophy wines well. We do high volume well. We are really good at being busy. And then we just have never 
yet taken the time to like flesh out that middle and really like pay attention to to market trends that are everywhere else but here and i would like to think that like my efforts make a difference but like natural wine is just like if you can't scale it vegas doesn't want to do it and i'm hoping that i can show that with enough um thought and effort and while being realistic you know like building an operation that can be nimble and you know i want to i want to be a good example that if you understand the industry well enough care enough fully can build something that not all my eggs are in nevada which is part of the thought process is that i can ship to other states i'm hoping it could make nevada a better market and that's a thank you that's like a really excellent question i want to make nevada the best wine market that it can be and when i say that like there's just like i want to help fill those gaps that traditionally you know other buyers have tried to fill and that product um has had just a hard time sticking what's the question you want to leave behind for the next guest can be anything technology is like pervasive in everything that we do nowadays where would you see technology continuing to benefit our industry and that's like an like very open whether that be e-com whether that just be digitizing sharing information about what we all care about it's like what impact and like how will that benefit the industry i mean 10 years ago like none of this would have been here i mean i use shopify as my platform and even though shopify has been around a little bit longer than that i was still looking at like a a book that literally was like how to open a retail wine store that was probably published in 1991 and it quotes like the cost of a pos system at 20 grand 25 grand investment think thank god that is not the case anymore like if it wasn't for there's a lot of competitors with shopify i just happen to use that as my my on for my online presence i'm curious i'm curious how other other individuals in the industry look at that as an asset and hopefully everyone does look at it as an asset i think it's it's not going to replace the manual side of our industry because that's the product next question comes from one of our listeners they wrote in so many older somalis talk about their time working in vegas as this mecca like i think we kind of touched on it earlier but like just all these master psalms working there studying all these like just famous tasting groups and everything can las vegas get back to that type of environment for the next generation of sommeliers i hope so i also think though realistically there was such tremendous star power that was like highly focused specifically at bellagio at that time i mean and, and it, the property had already been open for four years by the time like i was able to witness that myself i think that moment in time was very special because there was tremendous investment in top chefs and without that has been diluted a little bit and i hope that i'm wrong by saying it can't happen again because i would love to see that happen again especially with the new generation because i'm so impressed by this generation and how they look at our how they look at the business of wine in our industry and it's like it's so refreshing to see the coming of age of all those they're still pretty young but like gen z i can't wait to see what they do with their unique lens and i hope that there's a, a second wave here in vegas i think there's tremendous potential however that moment in time with all the celebrity chefs and all the investment around these grand award lists i don't know that that will ever be replicated the same way but it doesn't mean that we can't have a second wave that's maybe a little more holistic last set of questions here we ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast so a nice compare and contrast across the episodes for the listeners who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far when you look back on it i know i mentioned them early on without a doubt absolutely like 
Rob Bigelow, Darius Allen. But I had a third mentor who was actually outside of the industry. And I get to meet him in the coming weeks for coffee. But his name's Jim Gans. And he has nothing to do with food and beverage. He was the VP at the Las Vegas Convention Center and Authority, the LVCVA. And that is such a big driver in our city. And I got paired up with him in college when I just randomly enrolled in the mentorship program. And it was something that was only supposed to last for a semester. But like every now and then, and now that I'm more mature and I look back and I think about it and I was like, I'm so happy. Like uh, so much of what happens in our careers, like of course the willingness to put yourself out there and the opportunity, but luck plays a big factor timing. Like you can't manufacture that. So I got paired up with Jim and I think what he has now that like time has passed and I meet up with him probably twice a year. I used to meet up with him more frequently when I was still in college, but I got to see what his career trajectory was and how bumpy it was and how he had to go through before he got to the VP role at the LVCVA, you know, he was like the education path he was on at UNLV and then working for, for the water authority and the sanitation authority. And, you know, just some like things that we all come up against. Like you have advocates that you find in your career, which are so valuable, but you have people who you come up against and the human factor. And we're all very skilled at the interpersonal relationship already in this industry, but you come across blockers in industry. You come across people who don't think you're ready to do something or people who have negative feedback in one way, shape or form. And I think that understanding how to like approach that with a positive mindset and not take those moments too personal or let them define you or like limit you has always been something that I was never able to get that feedback from, let's just say like my family of origin. Cause a lot of people like lean into different ways where like they lean into their like partner or their family for positive feedback. And I never was able to do that. And it's not a reflection of that. It's just that like, I needed people who were outside of people who weren't too close to me to give me some honest, unbiased feedback of like what they see my limitations are for me, Jim early on, which is part of the reason I think he stuck being my mentor for so long is he saw that like, although I was passionate and like ambitious, like I struggled for a long time with self-confidence because I didn't see other people who were like me in the industry. Like there are other women in the industry, but there weren't very many. And I always like wondered, or even people who are there's those, like women, it's like, you know, what's your background? What's your ethnicity? Like you kind of need examples that look like you sometimes. But then I looked at the, I thought about that and I was like, it's okay that I don't have examples that are just like me, but maybe there were people who stuck by me and always encouraged me like to take the next step, which were in a combination like the three mentors that I mentioned. And but Jim was outside the industry and he like was very persistent. And there when I asked for his advice, it was always like when I needed him, I could lean on him and ask him, like, hey, I want like you to be my sounding board. If I could, I mean, I don't, I don't mentor people directly. Not that I'm opposed to that. I hope one day, like I'm I'm about to be that age where those guys came into my life to be mentors. So I hope that you know, I have an opportunity to see somebody who's young and curious and like maybe needs just advice when they want it. But, but those, they were very influential. If I didn't have them, I'd probably, I don't even know. I would have probably ended up in a different industry. What is your desert island wine? Dry Riesling, like high acid dry Riesling for sure. Maybe something like from the Nahe. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So I know you don't work at restaurants anymore, but this question, person gets stuck at the airport, flight canceled, stuck overnight. They reach out to you. Hey, you know, where should we go? We, you kind of point them in this direction. Oh my gosh. Anything Jose Andreas group. And I say that because the food is outstanding. 
but whether it's like Bizarre Me or A or Haleo or like China Poblano or any city that you're in, the man is, and we all know this in the industry, but the man is like a living saint, but the food that Think Food Group puts out and like TFG puts out is amazing. And it's not, I don't think it gets the accolades that like classic French cuisine gets, even, even though they're like highly reviewed, like they have so many positive reviews, but like the quality of the food they put out, how much they care about it in 2023, like that's where I want to go eat. I mean, and if it's not like a celebrity chef off strip, Sparrow and Wolf, um, EDO, Anima, those guys actually quite a bit of them cut their teeth from like the Jose Andreas group, but went off strip. Lotus to Siam is a classic. It's not easy to get into, but the food's awesome and the wine list is awesome. But those are like on my short list. Um, I'll leave it there. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So place you have not visited yet, you still want to take a trip to restaurant you have not dined at personally yet, but you still want to go to one day. It's cliche, but Alinea, I just want to see what it's about. Haven't been. I know a lot of industry friends that have gone and, and even to this day, like have tremendous things to say. It's not necessarily a restaurant, but I really want to go visit Kola Rubrik in the falls. I love what they do as a winery. And I know they have like an inn, which I think might have a restaurant there, but I just want to go there mostly for their wines. Yeah. And I know we touched upon it too, is that like, although I mentioned specifically, like I want to go visit Kola Rubrik because I love their style and what they do. I've been to Germany, but I want to, I haven't been specifically there, but I want to go spend more time in Austria and I've never been to the Czech Republic. So I want to go visit Vienna and Prague and I'm um, but who doesn't want to do that? <laughs> like that's just sounds like so much fun. Uh, there, I feel like too, that's like such a loaded question because I feel really lucky. I dine out a lot. My husband, because my husband's in the industry, we get to go to a lot of fun places through his work too. But I remember back when that wasn't the case and I want to go so bad to like Japan specifically and go like just experience those like micro ramen shops, not one in particular, but like I want to go with a local like sake friend who just knows the ins and outs of where to go. And I know that's not specific, but I almost would rather just dine locally because Las Vegas, like some of the best places right now are also like local dining off strip because of so much talent that is left. And I just know that that's like where the rest of the world is at. And like they, you know, the casinos are special and give us all really good employment opportunities, but that's not real. It's not like the real world. So craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant when you were working. When I was working at a in Cosmopolitan, which is like, of course, you know, like it's like a six to eight seat dining experience, two turns a night, typically 90 minutes. It's not quite as expensive as like Guy Savoie or Robuchon or L'Atelier, but it's up there. It's probably like $500 a head. Between turns, there's a gentleman who, like people in Vegas, like Vegas is an alternate universe. And so some people are straight laced. Some people like come in and like, they've already been doing like anything and everything. And there was a guy who was probably about 35 years old, maybe 40 at most. And he kept on getting up in between like courses, presumably to like, you know, go re-up on whatever he was on. And after he'd already left between like us, you know, resetting the room and like getting ready to like do, you know, do what we do best all over again, he comes back and he's like, you guys, and he was like, so shame. It was like, there was like, it wasn't even weird for him to ask. And I remember thinking, I was like, oh my gosh, like, where is this? I want to know where he's from. He comes, um, he comes in and he's like, 
you guys, I think I lost my drugs. And I was like, we were just like, I'm sorry, what you lost your drugs. And he's like, yeah, I had like a vial of, I think he said it was like LSD. And I was like, I say it, but it was like in a glass vial. And he's like, I think I dropped it. And like, we we're all on the ground, like with our flashlight. And we're like the whole team, it was like six of us chefs. Cause it's like, I was the only front of the house portion. The rest of the team is all chefs. And so like in between settings, which is super time sensitive and like such a crunch, you barely have time to like drink and, you know, like freshen yourself up for the next service. We're like on the floor of a, with flashlights, our phone flashlights, like looking, helping this guy find his drugs. And we're just like, we didn't find it. We don't know what happened to them. Like they're gone. Or maybe he dropped them somewhere else. And when he like finally left and accepted that we couldn't find them, we were all just like, what is this? Like, what, like, what is this? And it's like, I know this happens in restaurants, especially like high-end restaurants around the world. Like you get a like eccentric crowd, but that was a moment that was like memorable. But then there was another one, which is also in that same room. And although I, I think of like, that I have to share this one is this one's like a little bit more heavy is, um, I don't remember the exact date, but there was like um, a scare in Vegas where they thought there was like an active shooter. And it made me kind of want to like, honestly, like it made me reevaluate working in the industry altogether. It was a false alarm, no active shooter, but like the sheer panic, that was also very memorable because like there's so many people on the street and like how they funnel in through the casino and like up through like um, the way Haleo is situated and they come up like when I talk about like people, like hundreds of people and they overwhelmed the whole stand, overwhelmed the whole and it ended up like all of a sudden we went from like quiet controlled service into this panic environment. And the sheer amount of people who can all of a sudden like show up and need like who are panicking, who are scared and like we're not necessarily trained for that. So it's very, you know, like we were like want to be the best professionals yet while still being human. And then it was false alarm. So after that, just like, Everybody in the who was in the middle of their dining experience, like obviously got up. We all got up. We had to like crowd control and like panic control. Everybody was on lockdown after that was done. And they said, Oh, like false alarm, like nothing's wrong. And we're like, we all went back to service as if nothing had happened. Everybody who like left and like disappeared, who was sitting down, came back. Every single one of them came back to like sit down and continue their dinner experience. And it was such a moment in time where we were just like, there's no playbook. We all like, of course, our nerves were like super high. Like when you pour something or you set something down, you're like a little bit shaky because we're all human. And the reviews that we got after that were like so kind, so positive. And they were just like, I can't believe that this team like went right back to service after that. And like, we weren't quite sure what to do that's the only thing we know how to do. And it like felt like the right thing. And we just went on with our night. We ended up doing second service. And of course, at the end of that night, you're like, we obviously all need to go out for a drink. Like what the hell just happened? It was wild, but it was also wild to think that like, after we found out that like false alarm, it was wild that like everybody came back. Nobody was like, I'm going home. Bye. See you like tomorrow. It was just like, you know, it just kind of, I think reinforces that like, well, A, the guests came back, which was like pretty impressive. They didn't just like go to the casino and start drinking. The fact that like everybody was just like, all right, like we're pros. We're just gonna, we're gonna get right back to it. It was, it was an interesting moment. Like people were hiding in the wine room. It was crazy. Like wine room full of people, back halls, like walk-ins full of people, like nobody knew what to do. So that was very memorable. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever that, you know, is pretty unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself. Flaming hot Cheetos 
and paired with like a sparkling wine that has like a little bit of residual sugar. Not so much candy, but like salty, crunchy snacks that pair with bubbles of any kind. Doesn't even have to be champagne. It could be like cava, prosecco. So this next one we have broken into four categories. So it's wine recommendations. This is for the person, avid wine drinker, but kind of gets overwhelmed with the big wine shops, grocery store, whatever. You know, these are things that you think they should be focusing on trying or be open to trying and, and seeing if they can find and drinking. So zero to twenty dollars a bottle, zero to fifty, zero to a hundred, and then over a hundred, no real limit. What are you recommending for somebody to kind of try, be open to something that they should be getting into? It's going to sound like I just only push sparkling wine, but I just believe that it's so versatile and it's like the answer to everything minus the desert island portion. Under 25, which is honestly like, it's like that almost feels like it's soon that it's going to be hard to even answer that question, but high quality cava, non-vintage, Cremant de Loire, for sure, like European classic. I still stick to Cremant de Loire, high quality cava, under 50. I mean, you can get like some dope, fran- like I say, depending on the French Cordic, because French Cordic can be just as expensive as champagne. Let's go, let's up it with vintage cava. Like that's pretty niche and special and always high quality. I'm obsessed with like, I keep on going back to the same well, but I just keep on upping it. Jackie Blot makes such amazing dry Chenin Blanc and it's like retails usually under 50, sometimes slightly more depending on where you're getting it. And that wine is like mineral, laser focused. It's dry, but like as long as you're working off of like food that has any sort of fatty, like richness, like whether that be protein or snacks that are just like rich aged cheeses, work really well. Pet nat, for sure under 50 bucks from anywhere, like for anywhere in the world, unless you're dealing with like a really obscure. But what I like about pet nat uh, as a category is obviously it's approachability. <clears throat> it's fun. It's playful. It doesn't have like the high atmospheres. Um, that you get out of like a traditional sparkling. Even though I don't talk a lot about domestic, I do really like Joe Swick's like City Pop, if you can find it. That's a pretty fun one. Other than that though, like the Flora wines that are coming from uh, the Fuso project, like those are like the Prosecco and the Rosé Prosecco are really, really delicious and really affordable. Definitely like under that 25 mark. If like the skies, if there's no like, if the budget gets a little bit higher, obviously we can go to like, I think Cremant or Begonia is super delicious. It's not easy to find, but even producers that you find on a wine, more traditional, like a wine list, um, but you can also find retail, the Patrick Pugh's Valdemar, like those are awesome wines and they're like made in a classic way. And they, he has like his, you know, his like, mostly like kind of sourcing from the Chablis area, but they're very lively, very food friendly. And he makes a rosé version too from like Pinot Noir. If price is not an object, grower champagne like all day long. And grower champagne because like they have a sense of place, they have an identity. Gaston Chiquet is like super delicious always. And Mousset, like Cedric Mousset, I was impressed with when I got to know a little bit more about his work. You know, like not only is their family story super interesting, but like the fact that their champagne is primarily grown on like that green chalk, which is like really, to me, it's so site specific and it's like worth every penny. And they're, those wines are are pretty pricey, but like for those who like have um, an affinity for that, like tactile experience and like tasting and smelling and like, I know we didn't get a lot into the olfactory of it, but like obviously how things taste is really important. 
But when wines are so layered and have so much to say and like are a conversation piece and definitely worth sharing with friends and family or anyone who's a wine lover, Cedric, like those Musset, like his family and his wines, plus he works for the CVIC. He like worked with the team um, on the French side and like helping move forward some of the laws that the champagne industry um, traditionally was quite rigid on. So like that's an interesting part of the story too. What is one book focused on beverage that you think everyone should read? I really like Madeline Puck's like book that she recently released, of course, wine her like you know from wine folly i feel like that is a good modern day replacement for like windows on the world because like kevin's Rayleigh, i know for the longest time at least when i was getting into the industry like that was the standard for like wine 101 and it, it um it had a moment and like was very appropriate at this time but it feels a little dated now and so i like Madeline's take is like a little more playful, a little less serious. I think it also leans a little bit more into like the Eastern Bloc and some of those Eastern European like regions and the the value that they have to offer the wine world. So uh, that's what I would go with in 2023. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. If you were, is there a moment episode scene that still stands out to you about him? If you weren't, is there anybody else who was on TV, uh, whether it was like Emeril or Jacques Pepin, Julie Child? that was on TV, a culinary personality that you kind of gravitated towards? Anthony Bourdain is like perfect to talk about. I think I loved how real, like obviously, I mean, he like didn't hold anything back and the good, the bad, the ugly. I like the episode when he is in uh, Thailand and doing some like street dining. And I believe what was Bangkok, I can't remember the name of the episode, but like where he's straight up just like in the food stalls eating anything and everything that's available and just like doing it the local way because as much as as much as like dining in the US can be exciting those times in my life and I know I didn't really touch upon it cuz it like you can only talk about so much even in even in the time frame that we are in but uh I did have a moment where I worked abroad um in the late 2000s it was like their food scene is it's like just like what they're doing is so interesting and exciting. And because they don't have like the strict regulations, which that's a two-sided coin, like it gives them a lot of creative like freedom and like the food stalls. And it's not like we're Hong Kong where those went away, like, you know, um, after like eight, the avian flu, like those, all those outdoor food stalls kind of got banned. So there's certain parts of the world that are so exciting for food that aren't over-regulated. And Bangkok, I think he did a good job like showcasing that. And I, that's still very much like alive and well. You can just go eat and drink. And yeah, like, you know, you hope everyone's doing everything right. But like part of being a diner is like, you kind of just got to assume you're going to go out and eat and have a drink and have a good time and not, you know, and not like feel bad the next day. Just, you know, because there's not like a health department around the corner, like there is here in Nevada every four seconds. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. Instagram, you know, I, I kind of mentioned I'm most active on Instagram, a little bit on Facebook. I'm not as active as I probably should be on TikTok a little bit because too, it's like those, like, it's hard to kind of work around those marketing regulations. But if they want to find me, I also um, recommend like subscribing to my SMS. And then of course, just like my old school newsletter through Kelly Som. But the SMS I think is, uh, is where you're going to find like the most value and any sort of specials or any sort of announcements. And the Instagram handle is just at Kelly Som, but check out the website. If you're in one of the seven states, uh, you can have wine shipped to your door. 
potentially, you know, we'll try out next time in Vegas. I might try out the hotel method, uh, see if that works, that work around. It's always easier to take wine like back with you too on an airplane. Like Napa obviously is easy, but like we've taken stuff from like stuff we got from wine shops in like New York and Nashville and like it's, as long as you check it like a bag, like they don't care. And, like, and they'll put it in a plastic bag in case like it breaks, but the box might get beat to hell. But like, I've never had wine break on us the times that we've done it. So, but no, this was awesome. Uh, getting into kind of all of like the nuances of wine licensing and all that stuff. Like we've had people that do imports and, and worked in wine sales and they've touched on it a little, but nowhere near the amount of depth that we went into. So that was super awesome um, just to kind of learn about what all is involved in that too and appreciate you coming on and taking some time out of your day to to chat about it all and you know next time we're back in vegas uh, i'll be reaching out uh, jessica is also in vegas too we've had on the podcast too so jessica Watt. oh she's amazing i love that that's awesome but yeah otherwise you know stay in touch let us know if you need anything anytime always an open invitation to come back on whenever you got events or something like that or you want to chat or whatever we always leave it open want to just kind of support everybody as much as we can Thank you, Newman. I appreciate the time. And yeah, I would love to like meet up next time you're in Vegas. I appreciate it. Thank you for thinking of me. A big thanks again to Kelly for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of her day on her son's birthday before they had his party. Jump on, talk about her career, wine law, everything that goes into you know building out this online wine retail, her expansion plans and all that stuff too as well. So she'll ship to those seven locations looking to add a few more locations to as well as she finds time to be able to apply for the licenses and all that stuff to be able to ship into those areas. But if you are in Las Vegas and you plan to head and everything and you want to get some great wine, you don't want to have to go to a wine store or whatever, do reach out to her and see. She'll probably be able to ship it to you if you're in an Airbnb. If you wind up at a hotel and you kind of know when you're going to arrive and everything, like the front desk will hold a package for you for like a day. So if you just kind of time it out, like she can ship wine to you and you can pick it up as soon as you check in at the hotel. That's what I would do. Uh, that's why I brought it up during our conversation to see if anybody had done that. So that would be my plan. And then you get some great wine. You don't have to worry about going and finding a wine shop or anything like that. And you can just drink stuff in your hotel room or whatever or your Airbnb or what have you. And even if you wind up in like an Airbnb or something in one of these other locations, you know, she can ship to those locations. So she just needs an address and everything. I would recommend reaching out to her directly just to confirm, but I don't foresee there being any issue with some of the stuff arriving. Maybe the Airbnb, if it's, I would maybe have it arrive on your second day there, just because things kind of get odd and weird with Airbnb sometimes. That's what I would be doing. Uh, if uh, Next time I'm in Vegas, I'm going to give it a shot and uh, get some great wine from her and everything. Again, you can follow her on Instagram uh, at Kelly Som, all the different wine content, everything. You can kind of find it there. The website's kellysom.com, wine club, shipping information, all that stuff. And then her kind of personal account and everything is at the underscore Kelly Lau, L-A-U. Kelly spelled the traditional way, K-E-L-L-Y. Uh, you can find us on Instagram too as well at SpoonMob. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com, and then make sure to subscribe to the podcast on either Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, our YouTube channel. You can subscribe to whatever whatever platform that you use. We're on there. Feel free to write in questions, comments, feedback, either through the contact portal on the website, or you can email us directly, SpoonMob at Yahoo.com. Appreciate everybody who's been listening. Appreciate everybody who has been taking the time to engage, uh, comments on Instagram posts or shooting in different notes, recommendations, all that stuff. Really fun to see, uh, be able to engage with people 
working on the mailbag episode currently too as well. So we're going to get that recorded and everything and get that out there. That'll probably be kind of towards the end of the month, I think, is when we'll just release that. I think that's going to be pretty lengthy too, based on the way it's shaping up. So that'll be fun, kind of cover a bunch of stuff that people have been asking and whatnot. But as always, if you're new, welcome. Hope you've enjoyed recent few episodes that you've been able to listen to. And please check out the back catalog. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support and continued listenership. Do always recommend whenever you wind up at one of these establishments that we featured on the podcast or businesses or whatever, make sure to tell them that you heard their episode on the Spoon Mob podcast. Always lets them know that they're reaching the right audience, the people that they want to reach. Our audience is people that care about the hospitality industry and the wine industry and everything. It's what we enjoy, and we want to see all these places continue to flourish and thrive so they're around for a long time, and more and more people can continue to enjoy them and everything. So otherwise, we will talk to you guys next week on Thursday.